Let's look into the Word of God this morning at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 26. So we come now into verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, who were also brothers, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, also known as Thaddeus in other passages, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. And weep, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, the long-awaited Messiah is finally on the scene in Israel, and Isaiah's prophecy from hundreds of years earlier is being realized. The Spirit of the Lord is on the Christ. And what is he doing? He is proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. He is preaching recovery of sight to the blind, and he is setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And he is displaying wonders by simply speaking them into reality so that a host of demons and a host of diseases and even spiritual damnation itself is all put to flight at his word as he heals both physical and spiritual infirmity. The Messiah is finally here. He is doing the long-awaited work. And a certain representative portion of the population wants nothing to do with him. They are the religious leadership in Israel. The scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis. They don't want anything to do with this man. They they know his prophecies, the prophecies concerning him, but yet they don't know him. 
He was in the world and the world was made through him, John 1 says. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. Speaking of the Jewish people and those who knew their scriptures the best did not receive him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So now what? So now what will he do? Three things that we see in this passage that we're covering today. First of all, he turns to his father and he calls upon his father in prayer. Second, he calls a new community of faith to himself. A new, the true Israel of God. He calls them to himself. And third, he calls these people, this new community of faith, to a new way of living. And he calls you and me as his people to a way of life that is counter-cultural to the core. He gives us four Beatitudes, which is simply the Latin word for blessing. He pronounces four blessings over his people. And it's not what you would expect. He describes the blessed life. This is the good life. And it doesn't sound like it at all. Because these are not the things, you know, being hated and and being poor and being hungry and weeping. These are not the things that we connect with the good life. But Jesus insists that it is. So what choice do you have but to take him at his word? What choice do you have but to believe him? And confess what you have said, what you have described, is the good life. This is the life that is blessed. As we go through this, make our way, get some progress under our feet, we're going to be considering this question. Am I living differently enough to be opposed? Our thinking has to line up with Jesus. And it naturally doesn't. Our valuing, our priorities, what we love must line up with the priorities and values and loves of Jesus. That naturally isn't the case, naturally speaking. You understand what I mean? Naturally, we're going to go with the current of the culture. And we're going to try to make strides in life. And we're going to try to make a name for ourselves. And we're going to try to build up achievement and so on. And that's what we connect with success and the good life and blessing. Poverty? Hunger? Weeping? Being hated? But we need to ask ourselves this. Am I living? Am I thinking? Am I valuing and prioritizing differently enough from the world to be opposed. Again, we have just wrapped up five consecutive episodes of controversy and conflict. And, you know, back, uh, I I can't really remember from church history when this happened, Um, who the guy was who put the chapter breaks and verses in the Bible. Was it a Philip? I can't remember. Anyway, uh, it was a long, long time ago. But someone had the good idea to put these chapter numbers and and verses in the scriptures, and so they help us. So where would you think that a good chapter break would naturally fall here in this section? Wouldn't it make sense to put the chapter break after 
verse 11 of chapter 6? Like, okay, that's the end of chapter 5. Now we get into chapter 6 because it seems like, okay, you have five episodes of controversy. Why break those up with a new chapter? Why not wrap it up after verse 11 once the controversy is concluded and we're, we're studying new stuff? It's a new theme, right? It, it does feel that way. And yet there is a tremendous connection between what we have just seen in these episodes of controversy and what we see now as Jesus turns to his father and calls the people to himself. Because what has happened is the old Israel, the leadership of the old Israel has rejected their rightful king. So now what will Jesus do? He is going to call a new leadership for the true Israel to himself. Men whom he calls apostles, who will be his representatives in the earth. He will call a new Israel, the true Israel to himself. And before he calls these twelve, he calls upon his father. So, I'm just saying that these things do fit together. These passages, which seem divergent, actually fit together very well. Verse 12, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. We know that Jesus was in constant communion with his father. Of course, that's a given. But Jesus recognized the need to break away completely from the crowd at certain times. He needed a consecrated quiet to have unhindered communion with his father. If Jesus needed that, don't we need that? As he begins this mission and calls this people that he'll send out to the world and he prays to the Father, how could we ever expect our continuing in that mission to ever be successful and faithful apart from prayer? Later on, Jesus is going to instruct his disciples in chapter 10. He'll, he'll tell them how to pray. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, he said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. We're not given the words in chapter 6 that Jesus prayed to the Father. Luke doesn't say. But I think from chapter 10, how he instructs us to pray, I think we have a pretty good idea much of what his conversation with the Father involved on that night. He was praying for the laborers that he would call into the spiritual harvest. When morning came, he called his followers to himself, and there was a host of them. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he had, we don't, we don't know exact numbers or anything, but we could safely say that Jesus had hundreds of followers, people who were called disciples. From those hundreds, Jesus calls 12 to himself, men who will be apostles, laborers in the harvest. I want you to understand something. This number 12 is not coincidental. It's not accidental. In fact, it's key. Choosing 12 men echoes the original formation of God's people, Israel. Because you remember the third of the patriarchs, Jacob, who was also named Israel, was given 12 sons who became 
the heads of the 12 tribes that would come from them. So what is happening here? After a series of rejections by the leaders of the old Israel, Jesus is calling 12 new leaders who will constitute the foundation of the true Israel of God. And that's exactly what they are called in Ephesians chapter 4, that he gave to the church apostles who were the foundation with the prophets for the church, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In fact, Jesus is going to uh, tell these 12 at the end of this book that they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Luke 22.30. But what a group, huh? What a cast of characters this is. And I don't want to get into all the details about each. I just want to highlight a couple that we don't talk about very much. One is, well, let me mention Judas Iscariot, first of all, whom Jesus chose knowing that Judas would betray him and eventually be replaced. But let's talk about Matthew, whom we were introduced to as a tax collector in uh, earlier in Luke. Remember? Uh that passage, Jesus calling him, saying, follow me. Matthew belonged to a group that consorted with the Roman Empire to afflict his own people. And likely, because this is what they did, he cheated their his people out of their money. What is this man? He's a traitor. He's a traitor to his nation. And then we have this guy that we don't know anything else about in the scriptures, except for his name in these apostolic lists, Simon, who is called the Zealot. That just doesn't mean that he was a very passionate, zealous person. It meant that he belonged to a group called the Jewish Zealots. And they had arisen actually around the time that Jesus was born. Yeah. Around the time Christ was born, this group formed to take up arms against the Roman occupiers, conduct guerrilla warfare and such. So you have one man who is a traitor to his country and another who hates Rome with all of his being. Do you think that these two guys are going to see eye to eye? And yet they have Jesus in common. And in Christ, they are united. Nothing can hinder their relationship now that they are in Christ. Nothing can hinder them from being partners in the gospel in this spiritual harvest now that they are in Christ. And this is the power of the gospel. And this should encourage you in being included I don't think that there is anyone here who thinks that spiritually they are all that. I don't think there's anybody here who thinks that spiritually, yeah, I've got it all together. God was very lucky on the day that I got saved. Nobody thinks like that here, I don't think. More, we are inclined to feel like misfits. We don't belong. We're not worthy, which is which is very true. But to think that, God cannot use me. And yet he does. He, he gathers this group, not because they have, you know, some great resume, like, Jesus, you really want me for this job of winning the world back. 
They're weak. But God's power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why Jesus chooses this group of men. And we should be encouraged. The misfits don't fit with each other and don't fit with Christ are called and reconciled and empowered by the gospel. Jesus would do the same thing with us. After Jesus has called the men, we see in verse 17 through 19 that he, with his disciples, comes down from the mountain where the multitudes are waiting. These people have gathered from all over. Now, this is the first time we have seen such an extravaganza around Jesus. We have seen already, and very early in his ministry here in Galilee, we have seen, you know, say, hundreds of people packed together so that there's no more room in a house where they're gathered. And, and you remember the story of uh, the paralytic and the, the four men, they have to go up to the roof and break in from above to get to Christ. So we've seen a, a good gathering before. We have seen the press of the crowd before. But if you scan over these verses, I mean, we get the idea they're coming from the far reaches of the country now. By the thousands, they gather to Jesus on this level place on the mountainside. Thousands press to him. They want to hear him. They want to receive that healing touch from Christ. They want to be cured of their unclean spirits. And it is Can you imagine, Luke doesn't give us the details, but he talks about this great power that is going out from Christ to heal them all, and they just want to touch him. What an incredible display this is. It'd be interesting. You almost wish Luke had given us a little more details of how it went down, because it would have been incredible to be there. The power of God was on Jesus, and his glory was being very uniquely displayed in these moments. But God's power was not on him only to heal. It was also on him to preach and to teach. And that's what he did. And that's what we see in verse, verses 20 and forward. What Jesus says here should sound pretty familiar. Right? Jesus' most famous sermon is the one that we find in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And there is a lot of parallels, similarities, between this message recorded in Luke 6 and what Matthew records in Matthew 5 to 7. That being said, why is there the difference in how the account is put down? Luke says that Jesus is with his disciples on top of the mountain and comes down with uh, with them to the level place to preach. This is the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew says that the disciple, Jesus is on top and the disciples go to him and then he preaches. W- why the difference? Because these are different sermons on different occasions. And it's not surprising that different uh, sermons would have very similar parallel themes. Here, let me just highlight one difference. Uh, Luke 6, the, the, the message here is 30 verses long. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is 100 plus verses long. But it's not surprising that Jesus would preach on different occasions with th- similar themes because of who he was. He was an itinerant preacher. He was a traveling preacher. 
And it's just common when a preacher is before a different crowd in a different setting that, that he is going to use in his message similar themes to what he has been preaching. He doesn't come up with something new, something novel every time that he speaks. Jesus had the same practice. He preached similar messages wherever he went. And Luke 6 and Matthew 5 to 7 is proof of that. And just by way of side note, there's a lot of people who, who question the Bible and um, the integrity of its preservation because they say, hey, listen, the apostles and their associates may have written the New Testament, but how trustworthy is their word to the original words of Jesus? Because when did they write? 30 years later. 30 years later. But I'd say three things to that. First of all, they have the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised would bring to their minds in remembrance the words of Christ. Second, I would say that the authors of Scripture did their due research, like Luke did. He thoroughly investigated everything. He checked up with eyewitnesses to to see, to make sure that the record was true. And third, this is not something that they are just suddenly recalling that Jesus happened to say 30 years before. Because Jesus preached similar messages over and over and over again. And in a culture where information was especially passed on orally, they did not struggle with memory quite the way that we struggle with memory. And so, yes, they remembered what Jesus had said. And I believe that his followers learned what Jesus said by heart. They knew the message. And, of course, had the help, the leading, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. All of that was a side note. Let's get into what this message is actually about. Okay? After being opposed by the religious heads of Israel, Jesus has called to himself men through whom he will establish the true Israel of God. So it's a new community of faith. And now he's going to proclaim to them the new life of the community. And what kind of life is it? It's the beatitude life. It's the blessed life. It's the good life. And again, on the surface, it looks nothing like what we think of as the good life. But again, I say to you, What choice do you have but to take Jesus at his word? What choice do you have but to believe him? Do you believe him? Do your values and your priorities and your loves and your pursuits show that you agree with Jesus about what the good life is? He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, before we really get to unpack this and preach it, bring it, um, we have to deal with a couple of interpretive issues. Everybody's eyes glaze over when we speak of interpretive issues. But let's give three cheers for interpretive issues. Nobody? Okay, first thing. Who are the blessed poor? Who is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about everyone who is poor is blessed? Or is he talking about his followers who are poor? I think it's obvious this question's easy to deal with because at the beginning of verse 20, it says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. 
Not everyone who is poor is a follower of Jesus. The kingdom of God does not belong to all who are materially and economically disadvantaged. Okay, so there's the first one out of the way. If these blessed poor are his followers, here's the second question. What kind of poverty is Jesus speaking of? Because there are different kinds of poverty, aren't there? Let's just deal with with two and speak broadly. There is material poverty, economic poverty. You know, is he speaking of someone who is materially deprived and blessed nonetheless? Or is Jesus speaking of people who are spiritually bankrupt and blessed nonetheless? Because they know they are spiritually bankrupt and confess it. In Matthew 5, Jesus opened up the Sermon on the Mount with the words, very famous words, Blessed are the poor, anybody? In spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But here in Luke 6, Jesus doesn't give any additional descriptions of what kind of poverty he is speaking of. So what is the answer? Now, don't rush to judgment too fast on me on this, because I think that most of us would probably say Jesus means spiritual poverty, spiritual impoverishment. But I believe that Jesus is speaking of his followers, of his followers, that was the first thing, who are economically downtrodden. He is speaking of those who are poor materially. Now, of course, they are poor in spirit or they would not be followers of Jesus. They know, all of God's people know, that we don't have anything good within us that would commend us to the favor of God. We don't have, we're not writing spiritual resumes and saying, look God, I've got a history of a lot of good, you should take me. We don't do that. We know we need Christ. We know that. So of course these are spiritually poor. But I'll give you one reason to start that I think Jesus is talking about those who are economically downtrodden. Because Luke concentrates his account very, very often on those who are disenfranchised and marginalized in society. And that includes the poor. He is always talking about the downtrodden, the rejects, the people that nobody wants anything to do with. Luke is always highlighting those people in his account of the life of Christ. In Jesus' day, everyone, nearly as universally true as you can get, nearly everyone thinks that material abundance and physical well-being is the sign of God's blessing. Nearly everybody thinks that way. That's the, you know, that's the equation. If you have material wealth and physical well-being, It equals the blessing of God. But Jesus actually turns things upside down. He inverts the the equation. And he reassures those who are poor that they are in fact divinely and supremely blessed. Why is that? Why is theirs the good life? Because they have Christ. They have Christ. They have the kingdom of God. And Christ is better than all riches. You believe this? And he is better than all that riches can buy. 
The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is in every point of comparison infinitely better than the kingdom of this world, the temporal kingdom that is passing away. That's why it's the good life. That's why they are supremely blessed. They have Christ and they have the kingdom. They are poor for Christ's sake and they are secure in the knowledge that in fact they possess all the riches of God. The kingdom is theirs. And that doesn't translate to material wealth. It translates to heavenly joy. That's the good life. And it just, again, going back a couple weeks when I was talking about 1 Timothy 6, that's why it takes me off so bad that our churches are filled with false prophets, false doctrine, that Christians should expect as part of God's blessing the good life that is no different from the American dream of material wealth and physical well-being. So we're talking about one of Jesus' most famous sermons. Can it be any clearer than this? Blessed are the poor. Hey, God wants you to be rich. Wait a second. Jesus said blessed are the poor. Let's get real. Let's get biblical. Let's do away with false prophets. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, these first two Beatitudes obviously go together. The poor are likely to go hungry, but Jesus says they will be satisfied. Now, there's something that I want you to to really be clear on. I want you to understand that one reason these people are forced to do without, one reason why the followers of Christ often must go poor and must go hungry around the world is because they are following Jesus. They are walking the narrow road, not the broad road that is, you know, easy to fit into and where there's plenty of room for compromise. They're not walking the world's line. And so if getting ahead means you have to be corrupt, the followers of Jesus say, no thank you. Like last week, Pablo Ramirez, the missionary from Argentina who was here, said that he had recently lost a job, nighttime job, as a waiter because his boss, who had loved him up to this point, wanted Pablo to lie. And Pablo said, no. I would rather do without than lie. And he lost his job. Why might the people of Christ go hungry? Because we are not after the world. We are following after Christ. And we will be satisfied, Jesus says. Because Christ we have and Christ we can never lose. So, this is the thing I wanted you to understand. One reason why these people might be poor is because of Jesus. I don't think that Jesus has uppermost, uppermost in his mind, circumstantial suffering, circumstantial hardship. This poverty and this hunger and the weeping is because of Jesus. It's for his sake. There's, let me give you two reasons for that quickly. It's another one of these interpretive issues. First, because of context. What has Jesus been dealing with in chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6? Opposition. 
he has been suffering adversity. And eventually this opposition will climax with Jesus bloodied and mutilated upon a cross, breathing his last. And so as he calls a people to himself, the true Israel of God, it is just natural for him to speak in terms of opposition. As he has been opposed, so you and I, as we follow Jesus, we are going to be opposed too. So I think, again, that Jesus does not have uppermost in his mind these people suffering circumstantial hardship, but suffering hardship for Christ's sake. They're following Jesus and sometimes often reduced to poverty and to hunger and to weeping. And then the second reason I believe that is because of verse 22. Let's read that again. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Sometimes we talk in terms of uh, persecution as the worst forms of persecution that our brothers and sisters all over the world are suffering. I read recently, very recently, news out of Syria of a dozen, I think it was, Christians who had stayed in a city despite the threat of ISIS because they believed that Jesus had called them to that place to minister. And it cost them their lives. One of them, but 12 years old. Some of them women in brutal ways. And that's all that I'll say about that. And that's horrific. And we hate that. We must be praying for our brothers and sisters. But in this passage, as Jesus talks about suffering persecution, he, he does not talk about the extreme forms of it here in this place. He will in other places. He'll tell us to, you know, bear the cross and he'll predict being put out of the synagogue and being killed for his name. But that's not what he talks about here in these four kinds of persecution. They'll exclude you. They'll revile you. They'll spurn your name as evil. And I skipped the first one. They will hate you. Suffering persecution. So I think that it's clear, it's clear in the last blessing, the last beatitude, it's clear Jesus is thinking of suffering hardship for his sake, on account of him. And so I believe that that's what he's also talking about, especially in the first three Beatitudes. They fit together. He doesn't go from talking about circumstantial hardship, circumstantial hardship, circumstantial hardship, and then suffering for his name. I think he has in mind suffering for his name in all of these. Everything suffered. The poverty, the hunger, the weeping, and the shunning are all for Christ's sake. And yet, we are blessed. No matter what we face in the coming days in this culture, we are blessed of God. And let's always believe it. How often have we said, God has been good to me lately. God has been blessing me lately. And then we begin to talk in material terms, or health terms, or the success of our kids' terms, or whatever. Right? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, that's the good life. And when we do that, when we say, okay, now he's being good to me, now he is blessing me, we're just swimming with the culture. We're going with 
the current of the world. That's all we are doing. We are blessed because we possess the, the kingdom. We haven't realized it in full yet, obviously. But we're already, we're a part of it. We're citizens in it. We've been transferred into it. The kingdom is ours and we are blessed. And one day when the kingdom is fully realized, we are going to see the fullness of the glory of Christ and our hearts will be fully satisfied at last. And we weep now. We weep and we mourn. But when day comes, the great day, there will be the great joy. And we will laugh. He says, you will laugh. Because one day, you will realize that not only will pain and death be felt no more, but you don't have to fear them anymore either. Not only will they never touch you, but pain and death won't so much as rear their ugly head anymore. We will be free and we will laugh. We will be filled with the joy of God and it will burst out. It will be an irrepressible happiness. What brings blessing or, or woe? Philip Ryken here. What brings blessing or woe is almost exactly the opposite of what most people think. How can you tell that God is blessing you? The answer that Jesus gives is completely unexpected. He takes the things, and we're going to read about them in a second. He takes the things that almost everyone desires and says they will never satisfy. And Jesus thus teaches his disciples, he teaches you and me, to prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. I know that I have a long way to go. And I suspect that you probably have a long way to go too. Because we have been spoiled. We are richer here and now than anyone has ever been. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting ahead. We know that, right? There's nothing wrong with being ahead. But for a Christian, there is everything wrong with making our life's aim getting ahead, striving to get ahead all of our days. There's everything wrong with that. That is not who we are. We are Christians. We belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken by any kind of circumstance whatsoever. We are the true Israel of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the cornerstone. That kingdom is coming where our true citizenship lies. From heaven we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in this world, yes, of course, but as we know, as Jesus so clearly told us, we are not of this world. And so, no matter what affliction we suffer in this life, we can know that God has blessed us. God is good to us. We can rejoice in the day of persecution, as Jesus says, and even leap for joy. Because those sufferings, actually give us assurance that the eternal reward to come is really ours. Jesus said, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. How counterintuitive is this? How 
countercultural is this. But this is the way of Christ. This is Jesus' word. And again, what choice do we have but to believe him? Jesus said, when you suffer persecution, you're walking in the way of the prophets, whom the world rejected. And of course, we are walking in the way of the true prophet when we suffer persecution, who would be put to death upon the cross for speaking the word of God. Verses uh, 24 and following now. Just as Christ's followers are blessed as we forego the world's treasures and suffer for his sake, blessed with the sure hope of eternal reward, so the members of this world abide under the curse of God because they have embraced the world. I think we should we would do well to read this little bit again. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And I want to know, is that what you're all about? Uh, I mean, Jesus speaks so plain and he speaks so clear, but that doesn't mean that it it isn't easy for us to be deceived in our hearts and hardened in our hearts in actually going after these things. Who wants to be rich? Young people, when you think about what you want to be, what you want to do when you grow up, do you have fame in mind? Do you have popularity in mind? Do you have money in mind? As long as I make a lot of money, that's what I want. That's not the way of Christ. See, the people who set themselves after riches now, they've got their payoff. They, they've had all that they will ever have. When their life ends, or when this present age ends, whichever happens first, they will be torn away from their riches. He says, woe to you who are full now for you. Listen, you shall be hungry. You'll be hungry. For the eternal age, these who make their lives all about the here and now, who want to gain the world, as they spend eternity under the fury of the wrath of God, the Bible says that every appetite in them will be raging. They'll be hungry. I think that every appetite will be awake and screaming. They will be all desire and no satisfaction at all. And this is eternity apart from Christ. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And then finally, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I think this one hits really hard. It's a very worldly thing to live your life as a people pleaser. It's a worldly thing to try to keep everybody happy. If that means you become like a false prophet. Because what did the false prophets so infamously make their message? They said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They were telling Israel, you're going to be okay. God is for us. We have the temple. We have the ark within the temple. Our defenses are impassable. 
They were saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Can you tell someone who is sinning that they are sinning? Not not arrogantly, not with I'm better than you attitude, but can you warn someone? And and here's where I know you, and I know me, and you're nice people. And I like to think of myself as a pretty nice guy. And there's not too many people... Uh, maybe some value speaking their mind, you know, but most of us are rather, eh, I don't like conflict whatsoever. And so we keep our mouth shut and we say, don't worry, it'll be okay. You know, even when someone is sinning, we say, it's okay. The Bible says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. One author said they're approved because they maintain the status quo. They make no waves and they rock no boats. And everybody speaks well of them. Jesus was opposed. Every time he opened his mouth, he was being opposed. Not, I'm not saying that every time you open your mouth, you know I'm exaggerating somewhat. That people should, man, what a disagreeable whatever. I'm not saying that obviously. But there is something very wrong when everybody in our lives, near and distant, thinks well of us. With many, we may have a good name and a good reputation that is to be valued more than riches, Proverbs says. But Christians aren't going to have a good name with everybody. We're going to be reviled. We're going to be spurned. We're going to be hated. We're going to be slandered. We're going to be excluded. People aren't going to want to have anything to do with us because we follow Christ and are faithful to tell the truth. So that brings me back to that first question that I brought up. Are you living differently enough to be opposed? Do you think differently enough from the world? Do you have different enough values And do you live a different enough life from the world to be opposed? Jesus says that this life following Christ that comes with suffering is the good life. This is the life that is blessed. How does your thinking about what life is all about, the treasures worth seeking, the prizes worth pursuing, How does your thinking about what life is really all about, the good life, how does it need to be changed? How does your thinking need to be reoriented in light of what Jesus says to us in Luke 6? Let's do exactly what Jesus did at the beginning of our passage today. Let's turn to our Father. Let's ask Him for help. For us as sinners, needy sinners, let's ask Him to change our values and change our thinking so we don't walk the broad road that leads to destruction with the world, but we follow after Christ in faith and in holiness the narrow way that leads to life. Let's ask the Lord to change us. Would you pray with me? Father, we turn to you so um, so needy. Father, now that we have thought about um, this passage 
these words, the blessed life, and, and what you value and where we're to, what prizes we're to be after and pursuing. I think again, I know in my heart, it feels so different from my, my natural inclination. I don't think of suffering, being put out, or poor, hungry, weeping, as blessing, as the good life. And so we feel weak in this. We feel helpless. And we call out to you now and say, Lord, you must change us. You must change our thinking. You must give our hearts new values. You must put new treasures for us to go after. You must change our minds. And in light of that, Father, I just want to thank you again for that other word that we considered today. Your promise that we will be kept blameless for the coming of Jesus. You have called us and you are faithful as the God who has called us to surely bring us home. You will do it. You will see us all the way through. I ask for every person, I wish I could go around and name them off one by one. You know them. You know every individual heart. You know how it needs to change. Lord, help each one of my brothers and sisters to seek after you and to cherish the things that you say are blessed. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.